my name is John Gilpatrick. Joining me is Aaron Pinkston. Aaron, what's going on? Not too much. Doing pretty good. My cubbies are firmly in first place again. Going to stay there. Very excited for postseason baseball in Chicago for the third year in a row. Don't jinx it. I'm not. Uh, it's not. No, I, I'm fully confident. Fully confident. We, we, uh, we're recording this on uh, trade deadline day, so mm-hmm. few of their competitors got a little bit stronger, but uh, but I'm confident. At least, uh, I mean, the Brewers are just they've just been bad, so I'm not worried about getting to the playoffs. Once we get there, we'll see how it goes. But fair enough, we'll see. I'm I'm recording in my Phillies T-shirt, <laughs> so uh, no such excitement here. <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm excited to talk about movies with you. Uh, also joining us, Alex Moore. Alex, how are you? Great. Uh, staying warm here in Chicago. Probably not as hot as Iraq, but pretty pretty, uh, pretty sweaty. Yeah, I wouldn't think so, but it is definitely a warm one today. It's been hot out here in the East Coast as well. Um, we're going to be talking about The Hurt Locker this week, which is my choice of film, and uh, something that I chose in honor of Catherine Bigelow's latest, which is Detroit, coming out this Friday, which uh, none of us has seen yet, but uh, I mean... I'm excited for. I'm assuming that you guys probably are too. Um, and uh, yeah, the Hurt Locker is a film that I've uh, I've just loved and loved and loved since it came out. And I feel like every time I watch it, I like it more and more. And um, yeah, I mean, let's just jump right into it. For me, it's one of the best films of this century. When that list was going around, the Hurt Locker was you know near the top of mine. It's something that. I watched for the first time in theaters when it came out. It was the summer of 2009, and I was home from college. And, uh, you know, I kind of wrote a little bit in my opening piece about how the year before, or maybe two years earlier, like, they had started making movies about sort of the war on terror and uh, how they were all just terrible. Um, And then The Hurt Locker came along, and I didn't really have expectations for it, but um, it sort of just, uh, I think, upended that... Uh, stereotype that those films couldn't succeed, uh, and um, I thought it was really terrific. It it tells the story of three, uh, and and let me say up front, you know, we're probably going to get into the film in detail if you haven't seen it, um, and also. I'm speaking at least for myself, uh, not a military man. So if I misstate certain titles or terms, please forgive me. Uh, so uh, just with that out of the way, three military guys. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the technical term. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I wrote about it in my take, but um, yeah, thanks for the disclaimer. You really uh, you needed that, I guess. <laughs> Um, and, um, one of the army dudes, yeah, those guys in camo and, um, Jeremy Renner plays, uh, 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 William James, who is a a bomb diffuser. And then the two guys who are, are helping protect him are played by Anthony Mackie and Brian Garrity. And, um, just like a, such a good little thriller. And I feel like it packs like a really solid emotional punch too, that, um, kind of sneaks up on you. Um, but once you get to the final, like, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so, you're, like, gone through the ringer and you really feel connected to the characters. And I just think it's a really outstanding film. Um, Aaron, let's jump over to you. Kind of what's your yeah. relationship to the movie and, and kind of general take on it? Yeah, so The Herlacher kind of came at an interesting time in my movie-going life. Uh, basically, like, a year before I really 
started watching everything. That sounds uh, about right for me too. Yeah. So, uh, 2009, I did not see this in theaters. Uh, I did see it before the Oscars, okay. uh, of 2010, as you uh, had mentioned this in very strange for the Academy Awards came out in the summer of 2009. Uh, it actually even debuted the year earlier in 2008, I believe at the Toronto International Film Festival. I don't know if it debuted there, but it definitely played there. Yeah. So it's sort of an unusual, under-the-radar kind of weird movie to do so well at the Academy Awards. Um, but anyway, because it, it had been released in the summer of 2009, it was already on DVD by the time that the uh, Oscar ceremony came out. So um, so I had seen it, um, just rented it at the old video village in Rock Falls, Illinois, which, uh, RIP to the, uh, to the video village, uh, and every other movie video rental place ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that kind of tells you what, <laughs> much different, uh, much different time back in, uh, 2009, eight years ago, so long ago. Um, but yeah, so, so, um. I had seen it that once. I hadn't actually revisited it until uh, I watched it again for our coverage of uh, this week and preparing for this podcast. Um, but, I mean, it's definitely a movie that struck a chord with me. Uh, many of the big set pieces that run throughout the movie were the same, like, same level of being just in completely personal and visceral uh, a lot of I I, I didn't re- really remember a lot of the, the basic details of the plot um, or maybe some of who the characters were, but a lot of those big set pieces I had remembered even though I hadn't seen the film in eight years. So I think that's a pretty good testament to Catherine Bigelow's direction um, and the script. I mean, it's it's not really a kind of talky script. It's not one I feel like if you read this the screenplay, you would be like blown away by it, no yeah. pun intended. But <laughs> when you when you see just like how the film is constructed, how these these different set pieces have such a distinct um, uh, impact to them, uh, I, I think it's uh, it's really telling about the uh, the quality of everything about this production. Yeah, Alex, why don't you um, chime in here? Sure. I mean, I uh, I saw this film in 2010 after it won the Oscar. I think I watched it be- because it won the Oscar. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't remember too, too much about watching it the first time. I remember enjoying it. And I also remember uh, thinking, wow, Jeremy Renner, I've never seen this guy before, but he seems like a cool dude. I hope he does, <laughs> you know, more good things in the future. And he, he hasn't, um, for me anyway. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I rewatched it again for the first time in, you know, however many years the other night. And I have to say, I mean, a couple things. One, I mean, this movie is super entertaining. I mean, it's bleak, but it's, it's very entertaining. And I, I really enjoyed watching it. Um, but, but the other thing I really thought that Catherine Bigelow and the scriptwriters and, you know, the whole team does a good job with is, is sort of addressing issues of war, but doing it indirectly. You know, so they, they cover the, they, they make these like really fleshed out characters and then, through their experience, you see war, which I think is is kind of something that doesn't happen as much in a lot of war movies, especially ones made close to the event where people want to say something about the war. They try to say it directly. And in this case, I think Catherine Bigelow does such a good job of having like a fully 
fleshed out story with fully fleshed out characters that then says something about the war. Um, and I just really appreciated that. I thought it was like really uh, a, a good way of, of covering this. And, and it'll make it a longer lasting movie, I think. I think, I think so that's a really interesting point. Um, and I was sort of thinking of that as well, because one of my big pet peeves for many war films is that the cast always sort of ends up unless you have like a big star in the middle of the film, it's sort of all of these anonymous faces that you don't really know anything about the characters except for like one particular trait. Like, okay, this is like the Southern guy, or, you know, this is the guy who the has Joker. a wife at yeah. home or yeah. 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 It's just, I mean, it's like one characteristic stereotype. Uh, but besides that, you don't really like by the end of the movie, you remember that, but you don't really, you don't remember anybody's names. You don't remember really who they are in terms of what's happening in the narrative. But uh, the Herlocker, I think, does a really great job at really making us not necessarily really know much more about these characters, but you feel like you, I don't know, by the end you have such like a personal connection to them because, because I think you feel in a lot of ways that you're going through these crazy just absolutely intense situations with them yeah. uh and it, it has it really hits you on that sort of personal level that you feel like you you understand these people as individuals or at least like you can make the connection of of how uh you know h- how they are in relation to the war in relation to each other um which is i think pretty exceptional for for a war film yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think, to, like, to even take it one step further, um, the film makes its points in an indirect way, but it also makes them in kind of a general way, so that, you know, obviously this film is very specifically of, the you know, the uh, war in Iraq, but I think you can make the same points about war in general, um, and so they're not so, like, explicitly political about, like, the reasons behind this conflict and why they were wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Right, it's right. more just like, this is what war does. And that's what the opening freaking quote says is war is hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Absolutely. I think that that definitely, like you said, kind of makes the film, it gives it a longer shelf life for sure. Uh, but, but it's also really specific because yeah, these guys are, they have one job basically, right? They're not yeah. like general infantrymen who, you know, we're just kind of in the muck, you know, doing, shooting people, getting shot at. They're like, they're one, they're specialists, which is, oh, I feel like setting a, a film that has an occupation, if, if, if that occupation, no matter what it is, if, if you're watching like exceptionalism and specialists, it's always going to have sort of a, it's always going to be on this sort of a, a different level. And you definitely find that here. Um, but yeah, it's so specific to this war uh, that it's, you know, the war that it's portraying. And it's so specific to one just very small aspect of yeah. what the military does. And I, I think that specificity really helps, um, you know, just making it, you know, more of a unique war story. Yeah. Well, and going with that point, I, I also think that, you know, picking, for example, uh, in, in this case, she, she, they picked bomb diffusers, I think, for very specific reasons, which is that the bomb diffusion role really highlights what is 
special about modern war, which is the inability to distinguish between friend and foe, right? Like, yeah. it, that's, that's like a huge problem or a huge difficulty with modern war. And I think with the bomb diffusion, that really amps it up even more because all these people are standing around you. They're not explicitly attacking you, but somebody might have a phone that's going to blow you up, right? It's like, it could happen, you know, it could happen to any soldier with some guy with a gun on a balcony somewhere, but with the bomb diffusers, it really brings it to the fore, this real difficulty with modern war. Yeah, everything is a threat. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, we kind of talked about how the film progresses as a series of set pieces, um, and I want to kind of get into some of them specifically and ask you which ones you, you know, found most interesting cinematically or most exciting. Um, one of the things that kind of took me by surprise this time, which I'm sure I've noticed before, but it, it hit me harder this time, was the way that the film kind of counts down to their the end of their deployment um mm-hmm. and every scene kind of opens with you know 38 more days 30 days you know 24 mm-hmm. days and the increasing desperation that they have to just get out and yeah. james's recklessness the way it pl- that plays into uh where the way their desperation plays in, uh, against his recklessness is uh it just adds more sort of character um tension um, to the film, and I think it really worked, and I appreciated that. Now, in terms of specific um, scenes, I think, you know, the opening is really, really great, and you've got Guy Pierce. A lot of actors popping up in one-scene cameos, uh, <laughs> mostly because they end up getting killed. Um, but the Guy Pierce one, I think, is really, really great, and, I, you know, it settles you in for kind of setting the tone for the experience. Um where he's he's in the in the in the Jeremy Renner role at first, but of course he gets killed um, when a bomb goes off, and Brian Garrity's character has a shot at the guy with the phone, but he's unable to take it, and that kind of damages him psychologically. And I think that's a really good scene. Um, Alex, do you have any? Yeah, can we? Oh sorry, yeah, can ahead. we? Yeah, let's. I want to say something about that scene too because. Go for it. Um, I mean, obviously that scene is very important because you have to see the stakes at what we're dealing with here uh, and, and the danger that these guys are constantly in when they are doing the job. Right. And the way that first explosion works is so amazing. It's so cool. Like it's so like tactile. Like, you, I mean, you gotta be able to feel that thing. Right. Um, I mean, there's people like there, I don't know, like four or five years ago, I feel there were all these movies that, made fun of the 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 trope of like people walking away from an explosion right um i yeah. think the, the was the other guys like kind of that was the the sort of biggest joke on it where they actively comment on it right like the will ferrell characters like you know you're supposed to be able to walk away this that, that's not over or you know whatever I think that was a 21 uh, Jump Street thing too if i remember correctly yeah. yeah i think that's right that's the name that came into my head there's yeah. like I feel like there was probably a dozen movies that, that sure. had some sort of joke on that premise, right? Yeah. Um, so when you see, I mean, when you see, like, the massiveness of this explosion and then how they cut between different environments around the explosion and how they're affected, yeah. uh, you see, like, the top of a car and, the like, uh, yeah. you know, like, the dirt, like, something rattling on top of it. Like, you really just get the understanding of... of the, like the pulsing nature of this explosion um and then you have the the shot where 
Guy Pierce is the character. Guy Pierce's plane is running away from it and just basically just gets blown away. Um, uh, it's it's a really effective moment, um, not only just in how it's it's cut, but obviously in how it prepares you to to know the uh, how big the dangers are here. Yeah, definitely. Um, Alex, do you have any other scenes that you want to mention? Sure. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed the scene actually at the United Nations building. Um, That's the scene where they go to the car and it has a huge explosive and he he basically, James basically just like takes off his suit because he's like, "Eh, if I'm going to die, I might as well die comfortable (laughs) kind of thing. Um, But I just thought that that was like a tremendously entertaining set piece. I mean, it it just had all the elements of of just great action in it and, and setting up tension and, you know, not knowing you have that guy with the video camera who's, you know, you at first yeah. you're like, Oh, he's just holding the video camera. And then you have people on another tower that might or might not be communicating with them. And I just thought that that scene was, was probably the most, um, to me, it was like the most exciting scene in the movie. And then on, on top of that, I think I really like the way that scene ends, which is that, you know, he goes back and his teammate is like super pissed at him. Uh, I think yeah. Sanborn is very mad because he was, you know, James was being a rookie, ma- uh, not a rookie, a maverick, <laughs> the opposite, uh, <laughs> sort of. Uh, but then this, uh, I think he's a colonel, walks up to him and is like, oh, you're a wild man, you're awesome, you know? And so I, I think it sets up this awesome difference <laughs> between the way this guy is seen and the way, uh, the, the way that his team sees him. So Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, David good... Morse uh, is that character. And yes. Yeah, another one of those one scene. David Morse is very much like a that guy. Um, I mean, he's, yeah. he's in like exactly. hundreds of movies, but uh, yeah, that's like yeah, you're not quite sure what to expect, how he's going to react to that. But he's, <laughs> and I mean, he's basically it's like he's he's meeting a rock star. <laughs> yeah, he's and, like, and wild man. <laughs> yeah, the, the small point he asks him how many bobs he's diffused and. And James, you know, says, oh, I don't know, sir. And he's like, no, I asked you a question. How many bombs do you defuse? And he, like, knows the exact number. It's like 680-something, yeah. I don't remember. But he, he's able to tell him exactly how many. It's a, That's another little detail that, that really kind of brings in uh, a little bit into uh, to the, the, the character uh, and how you're supposed to see him um, and, you know, basically uh, his level of ex- exceptionalism. And the last thing, yeah, that, and- uh, the way that conversation closes is uh, he's, the guy, uh, David Morris is basically like, how did you do that? And, and James says, by not dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish I could come up with one-liners like that. Yeah, that. right. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think yeah. the, the other, uh, I'm sorry, the other scene that I found interesting, just kind of in contrast to what... Um, what Aaron was saying about the first scene, the opening scene where you have Guy yeah. Pierce getting blown up is I thought the scene in, in strong contrast to that, where the psychiatrist gets blown up really interesting just because that one, as opposed to showcasing how viscerally huge an explosion is showcases how sudden and abrupt and just sort of like nothing an explosion yeah. is right. Like one second that guy's there and the next second you see a plume of smoke and he's just gone. Like his, yeah. his body just disappears, you know? So I just thought that was an interesting contrast. They, she really does, or they do a really great job of, of, you know, rounding out the bomb experience, I guess. Yeah. Right. Because it's, I mean, the movie's basically like three, like, what, like four or five different, set pieces that all involve a bomb, it could, it could definitely have been very similar, you know, the same throughout or, uh, you know, how the, how the film's shot, how the film, and, and just how the narrative is. But yeah, you're right. They're, they're all def- definitely distinct, different experiences. 
And you have the one uh, which I I think I called the money the film's money shot where James is pulling up the cord and there's like you know six bombs that <laughs> come out of the ground that they're all attached. Just, you're just I remember watching that and I saw the movie with my dad and uh, when they all come up and there's like a really great note from the score and he just like I heard him just go like fuck. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, that's a that's a good one too. Um, so you know, for me, when I was writing about this film, it was hard to separate, uh, you know, it from the fact that it won a bunch of Oscars, um, and that obviously Catherine Bigelow was the first female to win um, best the best director Oscar, uh, and it was really kind of I think a big deal that this film was nominated for a bunch of Oscars at all. Never mind the fact that it won because it just in comparison to some of the things that came out that year, it was such a small film and and just had such a low profile like going into yeah. uh, the year that like it was it's remarkable. It, I I can't even th- think about this film without thinking about that fact. And I know that the Oscars, you know, people rag on taking them too seriously, but I feel like they did such a service to this film and its legacy that um, that it's hard not to talk about them and. Um, I also wrote about that this week and and uh, kind of reanalyzed the 2010 Oscars. And, uh, you know, you had the big story, I think, going in was Avatar, which at the time was the biggest, highest grossing movie of all time. Um, obviously, James Cameron and, and he and Catherine Bigelow had uh, been married and gotten divorced previously, which you know, uh, is kind of crazy. Um, I didn't know that at the time, actually. Um, huh. and, uh, and the Hurt Locker slayed, uh, Avatar, which was kind of wild. Um, right. there was a lot of other good films that came out that year though. And I think it was a strong year overall for the Oscars. Like they got a lot of stuff, right. Um, and I know, uh, you had Inglorious Bastards that year, which I was a big fan of. Well, still am a big fan of. Um, the Coen Brothers, A Serious Man, which I wrote about a few weeks ago, which is kind of funny. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that was, I, I think that's a really great film. Um, you had Up, which I think a lot of people would agree is one of Pixar's best films that was nominated for Best Picture, which is pretty cool. Um, and then you had some smaller movies that, um, you know, maybe not, haven't stood up quite as well, but at the time I still thought highly of uh, Up in the Air, the Jason Reitman film. And you had Precious, which is a Lee Daniels movie. Um, and, uh, you also had, uh, the blind side, which was, I, I think kind of blindsided people by getting a best picture nomination, but that was a big hit. And a lot of people mm-hmm. liked that movie. Big and obviously hit. Sandra Bullock won uh, best actress for it. Um, but Aaron, what do you think about just kind of the Oscars this year and where the Hurt Locker ends up slotting in? Yeah. So that was a very, yeah, I mean, it definitely was a very weird year, um, for the Oscars, uh, I remember going into it that I felt Avatar was probably the favorite to win Best Picture. Um, it had just won the Golden Globe. But I do remember that The Hurt Locker was definitely gaining steam. Um, I, I feel like that was probably the Oscars where I started to understand the... or, or I don't know if it was just because... I was thinking more about movies and about the Oscars and, and all that, or if this was when sort of the pre-Oscar punditry was really like taking rise. Yeah. Um, but I do remember that the Hurt Locker was 
uh, it wasn't a total surprise when it won. Now, it was interesting that it won because of some of the reasons we've mentioned. It came out in the summer. It, I think, was this, like the lowest grossing film of the bunch. I think when it won, it was the lowest grossing Oscar winner ever. Um, you know, it, it was uh, obviously the being directed by a woman. Not that that is a bad thing, but certainly not something that the Oscars has a great track record of championing. Yeah. Uh, even if it isn't a film that, you know, if you, if you asked 100 people who didn't know who directed this movie, did a woman or did a man direct it, I would feel like 99 out of 100 probably would have said a man, um, which is one of the interesting things about Catherine Bigelow's director. Um, yeah, so, I mean, The Hurt Locker definitely was the David to the Avatar Goliath. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I'm interested in, in, John, what you think of the legacy of The Hurt Locker, where we kind of stand now, because uh, it certainly isn't considered like one of the worst best pictures ever, but I don't know if it's a film that people really ever think about as being a best picture winner. Maybe I'm just wrong about that, but I don't really get the sense that people bring it up for good or bad. Like people bring up the artist, but that's because people like want to recognize that it is like a completely unrecognizable movie in terms of Oscar history. Um, where, you know, so, so the, the her locker doesn't have that going against it and going for it in, in, in that way. But, um, yeah, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think that that's an interesting question, um, that you, I think people tend to emphasize the bad and when the Oscars really, you know, quote unquote, screw up where you have Mm -hmm. something like the artist or the year before the King's speech, which people didn't think deserved to win. And, um, I'm sure there's been plenty of others, um, since and before you you tend to remember those like for lack of a better word fuck ups uh more Mm -hmm. than you remember the times that they got it right i feel like if avatar did beat the hurt locker i feel like you know people might be saying those things about avatar um, yeah i think i mean i definitely think it would be yeah that it belongs you know in that class and that you know the hurt locker was robbed it was because they couldn't give it to a woman or or whatever um (laughs) Well, I think the part of the interesting thing here is I think if you sort of surveyed film geeks, yeah, uh, Inglorious Bastards would be the pick, not the really. Huh. Yeah, I think so. Maybe that's just me because that's probably my favorite Tarantino movie and was my favorite movie of that year. Um, so maybe I'm just biased in that way, but I feel like. Yeah, I, I mean, I think definitely there are people that don't like Inglorious Bastards. I mean, I think it's more of a polarizing movie than uh-huh. Hurt Locker, but I think that people would think of their of Inglorious Bastards before they would think of the Hurt like Locker said, in terms what, of legacy. What should have won the Oscar in two thousand nine? Then people say like, oh, well, obviously it was, that was the Inglorious Bastards year. Um, no, uh, I, I, I mean. I think when you pose the question like that, I don't yeah. necessarily, I don't think I would say that, but I don't know if, I, if you ask people who won the Oscar in 2010, I don't think many people would be able to tell you the Hurt Locker. If you said, oh, well, that was the Avatar year, they'd go, oh yeah, the Hurt Locker. 
Yeah, but, yeah, those you know two I mean? movies are definite links, I think, forever, um, yeah. because of what happened. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand. I think that, like, if you look at recent Oscar history, you've got uh, the movies that people remember because they were terrible, or because they didn't like them with, like, mm-hmm. the artist, and then you've got something like No Country for Old Men, which was, you know, for a lot of people, just, like, a masterpiece. Definitely. And I think The Hurt Locker probably, general consensus is somewhere in between there. So yeah. it, it might not, and because it was a smaller profile, um, that it might not be the first thing that comes to mind for anybody. Um, and I think that's that's fair. I don't think that... Uh, I think that it's a lot better than you could have ever expected from The Hurt Locker, like, upon its oh, yeah. release. Um, and it did really well, even just... It didn't just, like, win Best Picture. It won Best Director. It won it, Best Original Screenplay. Uh, it won some of the technical awards. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a big winner. Yeah. I do think, and I actually saw somebody tweeting about this the other day, um, coincidentally, is that Mark Bowl won Best Original Screenplay for The Hurt Locker this year, um, and uh, Quinn Tarantino was nominated for Inglorious Bastards, and then three years later, Tarantino won for Django Unchained, and Bowl was nominated and lost for Zero Dark Thirty, and Mm -hmm. if I could go back and change something, I would flip-flop those two wins, because I think Bowl's work is stronger in Zero Dark Thirty, and I think Tarantino's is stronger in Inglorious Bastards, but, uh, you know, I don't have that power. So. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's kind of a tough call, though. I mean, I, I've, I've already praised the screenplay of, of The Hurt Locker here, so it's hard to go back from that, but yeah, Inglorious Bastards is such, like, that screenplay is just, yeah. like, freaking amazing. Uh, and Jingo and Chain is a film I don't like as much. Yeah, uh, Zero Dark Thirty is definitely more of, like, a screenplay screenplay. Yeah, um, it's a little bit more showy. So sure. yeah, I could I could get down with that, but that's that's tough. Yeah. Um, so one of the other uh, Jeremy Renner, he was nominated for best actor. Um, he lost, I think, to uh, Jeff Bridges, if uh, I'm remembering correctly, for Crazy Heart, which was a pretty forgettable performance. A movie but, that yeah. nobody has thought of. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's thought of it ever since, except for like, the, like yeah. once every three years when that song comes up on my uh, my iPod shuffle. <laughs> it was like the beginning of the current age of Jeff Bridges. So for yeah. that, I guess that's great. Was, uh, we needed to people probably would have. I think if we look back at that one, I, I don't know what you picked for for this year in your piece, but that was probably the year that people thought George Clooney should have won, and of course he had won an Oscar before, but yeah. for for a lead for a lead role. Anyway. I'm pretty sure that's what I said in my piece. Um, But I I think I also acknowledge that it was a pretty weak year for at least the five nominated performances and that uh, Michael Stuhlbarg was robbed for a serious man, in my opinion. Um, (laughs) But, uh, Alex, you wrote a little bit about Jeremy Renner in this film and sort of like his, the way he takes risks and the way that that um, characteristic plays out in other films with other characters. Do you want to um, discuss that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think um, I so you know in my in my sort of everyday life, I, I manage teams, and so when I was looking at at Jeremy Renner and the way he was managing this team, you know, it, it kind of stuck out to me as like a thing you you know he behaves in a way that you should not behave as a team leader. Yeah. Um, and when I and you know he takes a lot of risks, he doesn't communicate with his people, he puts himself before his teammates basically. Um, all the time, and and it's it's interesting because you know when you compare that with the way that uh, Guy Pierce's character was behaving in the very first scene, he's like the polar opposite, right? Like yeah. that scene is there also to establish 
just what a properly functioning team should look like and what a properly functioning leader should look like within that team. Um, and so when I was watching uh, Jeremy Renner's performance as James, you know, I, I was just seeing all of these negative characteristics. And it occurred to me that, you know, in a lot of movies, particularly American ones, I think, we, we tend to idolize the risk taker and the rule breaker. Uh, and this movie does kind of the opposite, where it actually takes you and it shows you what uh, the actual impact of being that guy is right so it'd be like if dirty harry or something were on a team with a bunch of other people in war like what would his teammates think of him and that's kind of what you get with jeremy renner in this movie is you get this maverick going out and doing his own thing uh and then you know in the end you see it actually gets someone almost killed right it almost gets um eldridge uh killed it gets him shot in the leg and eldridge is extremely resentful uh and uh and sanborn is pissed off for the whole movie and it's completely understandable <laughs> you know he um, is very pissed off <laughs> yeah and and it's funny because you know as i was thinking about this it's like you know when we think of uh, uh, a person like jeremy renner's character you we tend to glorify him just like that colonel did um and it's because he he gets the results you know we we only see the results of his actions but we don't know, you know, if he were failing, if he blew up a bunch of people rather than being a hero, he'd be like an idiot or, a, you know, uh, even worse, you know, just a, a danger to everyone else. So I just thought it was an interesting contrast that this movie kind of played with that trope of the, the risk taker and really showed you what that really means in, in, in the real world. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I did find it kind of, I don't want to say confusing, but it felt like in the one scene that we have Guy Pierce for, uh, like the hierarchy is really well established that, you know, he's sort of making the decisions and that uh, Sanborn and Eldridge and presumably the others there are, you know, reporting to him and protecting him. And when James comes on, like he couldn't care less about any of that. And it feels like that um, Sanborn feels a need to kind of step up and maybe be more of a leader in with this, you know, kind of reckless guy, uh, around him. And, um, they end up having, I think, you know, a series of fights, but, um, it felt like there was like a real power struggle between the two of them that, um, was kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, you can tell Sanborn is just like, you keep doing this, we're going to die. That was his problem. Whereas, you know, yeah. Jeremy Renner's like, I want to keep doing this. This is what I do. It's fun. You know, or whatever it is. I'm addicted to it. I don't know exactly what his deal is, but, you know. And, and then you also have this idea that comes up late, which is that he, you know, has a family at home that uh, he's obviously putting in in jeopardy his sort of standing among them and, and putting you know, their feelings on the line every time he does something reckless. And um, that plays out really interestingly with um, there's a young boy in the film who's selling him DVDs, which is just kind of a funny idea anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, is, uh, his name's Beckham, and, uh, and uh, James really kind of takes him under his wing, and, and when it looks like Beckham might have come into some trouble, he snaps and becomes, like, really protective and, like, extra reckless. Um, which, uh, you know, like you mentioned, kind of, uh, they end up getting into some trouble for that, but, um, but yeah, no, that's an interesting idea. And, yeah. um, and, yeah, and, go ahead, Aaron. And, um, I, I, I also think, oh, I'm sorry, Aaron, go ahead. No, please. Oh, I, I was, was just saying, so you oh, okay. Well, I was, I was transitioning a bit too, but I was th saying about to say, uh, you know, Jeremy Renner is like the perfect person to play this character. I think, um, uh -huh. I, you know, like 
like I said in the beginning, I was like, the first time I saw him, I was like, oh, he's pretty neat. I wonder what he's going to do. And then everything he did since then, I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. You're kind of, it seemed like a jerk. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's so perfect because it's kind of that, like, sort of surly. He's almost like got a little bit of Bill Murray in him or something. And he's kind of surly and kind of, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but he just has this air about him, this kind of swagger and mm-hmm. assholeness that really fits this part. And then he takes it to all this other stuff, and I'm like, oh, you're you're just this this person. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I was I was gonna ask what you guys thought of Jeremy Renner specifically because this was definitely his breakout. Um, it wasn't his first movie by any means, but right. uh, I think it was the first time that. Hollywood and filmgoers really noticed him. Uh, and he has had a, an interesting career since. I mean, he's he's a guy that I feel every franchise has tried to make yes, the, yeah. <laughs> tried to make the, yeah, the, totally. the new centerpiece. I mean, there was the Mission Impossible. There was the Jason Bourne films. Uh, and it, it just didn't really work out. Um, because, yeah, I think you had said he has a swagger. And I think that's definitely true. Um, he does have like a like an arrogant confidence, like naturally, mm-hmm. but he's also at the same time kind of a little bland at times, yeah, which is yeah. sort of an interesting dichotomy. Like he's kind of he does have that unique sort of confidence to him, but he's also kind of like every other leading man in Hollywood. Uh, maybe not, maybe without some of the comedic chops that some of the sort of new breed of of uh, you know film stars or even his more sort of contemporaries, guys like Matt Damon, you know, they they, they definitely seem to have more range um, than Renner does. Uh, yeah, so it's, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting place for, for a big breakout and then leading to probably a career that is maybe a little disappointing. I, I don't know, in the grand scheme of things, but he has a, he has a lot of room to grow, I guess. Yeah, well, he's forty six years old. Yeah, but like Tom Cruise, <laughs> I'm just is saying, like it's like, yeah, yeah. It's just like I, he, <laughs> like that seems, really he strikes me as a lot younger. Um, yes. I'm, it's just like he's later in his career than you realize, and I think. Yeah, I do remember when uh, Her Locker came out, and it's like, oh, this is this new fresh face, kind of leading man, kind of guy. Oh, he's like thirty five. Oh, that's yeah. Weird. Um, he did also get another Oscar nomination just the following year for uh, The Town the Ben Affleck movie, which I thought oh, was pr- pretty good. I completely forgot he was in that. Yeah, yeah. so did But I. yeah, he was good. He was good he was in good the time. that. I thought he had a Again, like, sort of an overconfident, kind of arrogant type, but sort of maybe on a, like, higher level. <laughs> yeah, he's more villainous than that. Obviously, yeah. like, you know, explicitly villainous. Um, he had a fun role in American Hustle, I thought, the David O. Russell movie, and then last year he was in Arrival, and... and that I mean, that's not like a, a huge role. He, I mean, he has yeah. an important part in that movie. Um, he doesn't do a ton, but yeah. I feel like that role. Now that I'm thinking about it, kind of reminds me a little bit of the Hurt Locker Jeremy Renner because he's doing this thing that you know not many other people would do, and you don't really mm-hmm. know what's going to happen, and and he's kind of uh, not following orders to a T. You know, not yeah. as uh, as uh, baldly as Amy Adams' character in that movie, but. Um, uh, you know, I think he's not not bad there. He's certainly like not hard up on work, so uh, right. you have to give him credit for that. Like he's working for a lot of people in a lot of movies, a lot of you know uh, studios putting a lot of trust in him. So um, yeah, you know, I think he's be, totally like, 
he's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. He, he was in the he was in the house this year, guys. Just just want to point that. Oh, that uh, that's the, the uh, that came out the Will Ferrell <laughs> Amy Poehler bomb. Yes, right. right. <laughs> well, he yeah. wasn't in any of the marketing of that, so I'm guessing. I know. Was... I, I'm actually kind of oh. looking forward to seeing him in. Um, I think it's Wind River coming out this year. It's by the guys oh, that yeah. wrote. Um, uh, uh, Hell or High Water. Oh, right? God, I'm, yeah. Sorry. Tyler yeah, I'm, I'm actually. I think he would be perfect in something like that. Yes. I can see that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, Aaron, you're um, talking a little bit about Catherine Bigelow's pre Hurt Locker movies. Yeah. Um, this week, do you want to discuss those, or at least what you've seen so far? We can, but can we talk about the ending of this movie first? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Because you touched on it. And I wanted to bring it up as one of my favorite scenes, but you didn't ask oh, me yeah. what one of my favorite scenes were. So. I'm sorry. I thought I did. I apologize. <laughs> you didn't, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, I just talked about the scene you picked for a little while. Oh, uh, yeah, but did. yeah, I think the ending of this movie is really interesting. Spoilers, obviously. Um, but so we, uh, like John, was, John had mentioned, uh, a lot of the film counts down to their, the, you know, they do this deployment for one year. When that year is up, they go home basically, Mm because this is such an intense job that you can't really just recycle people through it. Or or you you have to. You can't recycle the same person back into it or or elsewhere. Um, It's just too demanding. So so at the end of the film, he goes home, and we see, like, two or three scenes of him at home, and then the film ends with basically, like, two shots of him stepping off of a plane, walking toward the camera, it brings up uh, that caption again and says number of days in deployment and then clock turns back to 365 days. And then we get the final shot, which is similar to him walking toward the camera, but in the bomb suit. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, this is another sort of trope that we've seen in so many war movies, the struggle with uh, home life after the war. Uh, you know, going all the way back to The Big Parade, which was a movie that I have recently highlighted um, on the site, going back to, uh, oh, what's it called? The Best Years of Our Lives. lives. It's probably the quintessential uh, thing on this. Uh, Recently, you had American uh, American Sniper, uh, which uh, was a big part and actually probably the most effective, at least some of the most effective scenes in that movie, which I did not really like at all, uh, were dealing with this. But I think it's interesting that the Hurt Locker basically does it in like five minutes uh, and does it without a lot of explicit commentary. Um, it just kind of puts it out there and it, it, it kind of tells you all you need to know about this sort of theme that we, we see a lot um, in a really effective and economical way. Uh, and I think it's, it says a lot about, again, this character, you learn a lot about him through what happens here at the end. Uh, you kind of see, you know, who he is uh, very plainly. Um, and I think that that says a lot about, uh, and it's a very effective way of, of, of wrapping up. So, I mean, you could have had, you know, some big explosion that kills him, but, you know, maybe that's where this film leads to after the credits. But uh, that's kind of, I mean, what we see is tragic enough without having to see if it, if it does go bad, uh, which usually that's what that kind of, this kind of theme leads to. So I, I just, I wanted to say a few things on that. I, I, 
either of you have anything to add about the ending? Uh, who hasn't been driven mad by shopping for cereal? <laughs> I actually did love, love those grocery store scenes where he's standing in front of all that stuff, and he's just like, why does this even matter? You know, there's like yeah, 50 no, kinds exactly of cereal, and you're like, who, who, cares, who gives a shit, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, so, uh, back. do you want to jump back to sure. Catherine Bigelow and, and some things that you maybe noticed in her filmography? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, trying to put all of my thoughts together on her films as a whole. Um, I've, I've sort of watched and thought about each of them individually. Um, but her, I mean, her filmography before The Hurt Locker, I mean, it's it's so, like, diverse and weird, right? Like, she starts out with a really tiny film that I don't think anyone has seen, and then her second film was Near Dark, which is a film that's like surprisingly unavailable anywhere, um, which is really weird because I really wanted to see it because I've heard really great things about it. And it's like, I mean, it's a vampire Western, like that's so cool. Um, And then, you know, she goes through her career. She makes Point Break, which is, you know, one of in the canon of like guy action buddy movies. You know, it's like the film that, um, Edgar, like, it's obviously a film that, like, Edgar Wright can canonize uh, yeah. with, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Hot, Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. There we go. I don't know why I blanked on that on that title, but, you know, so much, it's like Bad Boys 2 and Point Break, or, like, those were, like, without those movies existing, Hot Fuzz doesn't exist. Um, you know, then you go on to... Uh, Strange Days, which is like a crazy future sci-fi movie. Um, and then another movie called The Weight of Water that I don't think anyone has seen. K-19, The Widowmaker, which I'm going to be seeing soon. I haven't seen it yet, but I know that's one that people like. Uh, and then The Herlocker. So, like, working in a lot of very macho um uh genre films a lot of uh, a lot of exceptional people a lot of sort of job movies i mean uh you have you know fbi and uh in point break you have i guess the, i mean Str- strange days he's like a former cop there's a, a movie she made with starring jamie Lee curtis uh earlier in her career i think it was her third film where she plays a cop you know we past um her locker you have zero dark 30 where obviously it's a character another military movie um but another sort of uh exceptionalism figurehead in the jessica chastain character so so she's definitely like that sort of theme definitely runs through a lot of professionals uh who are very professional um and good at doing their jobs even if they're like in weird kind of hard-boiled genre pictures um yeah i sort of mentioned before like a lot of her films you would never necessarily guess that they were made by a woman i mean if you look at wonder woman for example like obviously women weren't allowed or hadn't been picked to make superhero movies for a long time even ones that maybe had some strong female characters. I guess there weren't that many of those, but uh, when you watch Patty Jenkins, Wonder Woman, like you can, there, there are definitely sort of imprints on that film that tell you that it's coming from a female perspective. 
where and i feel like at least i'm not seeing them i mean maybe they're totally there she i mean i guess you can say with something like zero dark 30 you know that character is definitely a woman at the middle of that movie right i mean Mm -hmm. she's she's a tough woman um but she's you know that that's uh you know the the way that she's written the way that she's developed and, and portrayed uh you you never like she might be tough, but you never like, this is like, this could have been a man. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that her being a woman is important to the way that film progresses. For sure. Yeah. Do you guys have any thoughts on, uh, Catherine Bigelow? Um, I mean, I'll echo a lot of the same things and, and there's films in there that you have seen that I haven't, but, um, it is hard for me to look at the Hurt Locker and some of the other ones that I've seen and see, uh, the things that that you're talking about, and um, and it's really interesting, and and I mean, it's it's hard to talk about. Actually, I find it difficult to discuss because um, I don't want to be dismissive and say that right. oh, this is the type of movie that women can't make, but she did it. Because I'm sure that there are a lot of other filmmakers that could have done really interesting things with something, you know, this type of material. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that she became the first woman to win an Oscar for a film that feels extremely masculine i don't really know how to reconcile you know that's that's just something i find interesting Um, (laughs) right and so i'm always drawn to her films because i feel like i'm gonna walk away um thinking about that you know what i mean Mm -hmm. definitely um yeah alex do you have any thoughts uh, I, yeah, I mean, I haven't actually seen all that much of her filmography, but I, I think with her, you know, her latest two f- films, Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, I, the thing that I found really special about both of those movies is just how sort of non-judgmental were about things, you know, how interested they were in actually portraying reality as opposed to talking about the politically charged issue of those particular wars. And, you know, I think that's really special and it makes me excited to see Detroit too, because I, yeah. I think it'll bring sort of a, a perspective that's really, you know, I, I don't know how to say it, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a movie that, that makes it, it feels real, you know, like it feels much more like somebody's trying to show me uh, the people in these movies as a, in these times and places, as opposed to trying to tell me, you know, what they believe about these times and places. Yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, I think you can definitely see with The Hurt Locker and then Zero Dark Thirty and going to Detroit, like, it feels like now she is definitely, like, on a more auteur course. Uh, and I, I, I think some, I mean, some of the credit definitely has to go to Mark Bull as well, right. um, yeah. who is the screenwriter for all of those films. Uh, and they have a very close um, working relationship. Um I mean, I think they uh, are romantically involved as well. Um, mm-hmm. We might want to, <laughs> we might want to check on that, but I think that I'm pretty sure that's right too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, they they have become sort of a, a film couple, you know, a cinematic couple uh, who are are working really well together. Um, now, Catherine Bigelow directed these movies. I, I'm going to give her more of the credit for them, obviously, because she has to bring that screenplay to life. Um, and she may have also had a hand in, in some of these screenplays, whether she was credited or not. But yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing a strong, uh, a more strongly consistent through line with her now, um, in terms of, at least in terms of the aesthetic. 
Um, even though Detroit isn't, from what I understand, it's not a military movie. Um, it's, you know, a, uh, a drama, maybe thriller set in Detroit featuring, I don't know a lot about it, but, you know, there's some sort of murder scandal. I'm guessing police are involved in that um, for the African-American community in, in Detroit. So, you know, narratively, that doesn't isn't necessarily... Uh, similar to her last two films, but there's sort of a, at least there's an, there's a seriousness in the aesthetic um, that I think is a little different than some of her earlier films. I mean, Point Break is an awesome movie, but it's like about surfer dudes, you know what I mean? I like it's, <laughs> and it's a serious movie, but it's also, you know, very kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're like, yeah. yeah, there's some goofiness to it. I mean, they're, they're like, you know, there's these, there are these like, uh, free-spirited you know surfers that are like talking about like you know you know just being at peace with the world you know and then robbing banks but but still like it's you know it's a it's a different vibe so um it'll be i mean it's gonna be it's gonna going to continue to be interesting to see where Catherine bigelow's career takes her and i mean i i wouldn't be surprised if she hasn't made her best film yet uh yeah that's mm-hmm. exciting to even consider that um very quick uh, update is that Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull were once a couple and are no longer. Oh my! As of well, 2012, we'll, so we're not we'll exactly. See how, that, we are. We'll see how that portends to Detroit. I guess. Maybe Mark Bull will write a screenplay about it. <laughs> Maybe she'll direct it. Would which would be something. Uh, so I think that's going to just about wrap things up. Um, we will have a review of Detroit. I'm going to write that on Friday after I get a chance to see it. Um, so by the time you're listening to this, you probably already know what I think of it, um, and uh, I'm very excited, so we'll see what happens. But um, uh, before we jump, uh, thank you to the Hemingbergs for the use of uh, Half a Second, off their album Half a Second, uh, which you heard uh, at the beginning of the episode. Um, you can also check us out on Twitter, at The Sin Essential. You can uh, like us on Facebook, just search for The Sin Essential, and uh, do the same in iTunes, where you can subscribe to the podcast download new episodes and leave us a review while you're there five stars it will help other people discover and enjoy our podcast which we enjoy making so um alex and aaron thank you very much for uh joining me and watching this movie and discussing it with me i very much appreciate it absolutely and thank uh, you yeah with that uh we'll uh, talk to you again soon